Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Hello, this is Joseph Shaw, Chairman of the Latin Mass Society and host of the Society's IOTA Unum podcast series. To launch a new series of these podcasts, I have decided to give a talk of my own on the issue which is occupying the thoughts of everyone sympathetic to the Church's ancient liturgical tradition, Pope Francis' apostolic letter given motu proprio Traditionis Custodes. I have written this presentation especially for this purpose, but later podcasts in this season, which are already recorded and ready to go, will, as before, consist of me interviewing one or more people about other topics of interest. The title of this podcast is After Traditionis Custodes. The ancient Latin Mass, often identified with the Missal of 1962, but substantially unchanged since the 12th century and going back to the time of the Fathers of the Church, is a precious spiritual possession, the birthright of Latin Rite Catholics, and a fundamental monument of world culture. By its origin as the Mass of the Papal Court, it unites the worshipper to that centre of unity, the office of the papacy. That, at least, is my view. It was the view, essentially, of the cultural figures, including Agatha Christie, who signed a petition 50 years ago to preserve the traditional Mass. It was also the view expressed over many years by Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI. On the face of it, it does not imply anything bad about the Second Vatican Council or the authority of the Pope. But the ancient mass is not theologically inert. It exerts a centripetal force on the Catholics attending it, drawing them back to the centre of orthodoxy. Catholics attending it reveal to researchers that they accept the hard teachings on divorce and sexuality, as well as on the real presence, to a far greater extent than do those who attend the Reformed Mass. Those attached to the old mass often experience this in themselves and in others, this Mass has the power to draw in non-believers and the lapsed, as well as to inspire the fervent. In a time when the moral authority of the Church is at a low ebb, and people will not accept the truth of things just because the Pope or bishops say so, it is a valuable spiritual means of drawing people into the truths entrusted to the Church by Christ. If what I have said is true, many will find the traditional Mass helpful in growing in holiness. Since there are many kinds of people in the world, others may not find it particularly helpful, just as they may not be particularly interested in a specific devotion. If both the traditional Mass and the Reform Mass are available, what objection could there be? Why would anyone with the interests of the Church at heart, let alone a Pope, want to see this Mass disappear? In this podcast, I want to offer some explanation of Traditionis Custodes, of how it could be that document has been promulgated with the stated aim of the eventual elimination of the ancient mass. I will go on to discuss the effect it is having on different groups of Catholics. Finally, I'll give some indication of where we go from here. Part one, is the value of the old mass officially recognized? Has the value of the ancient liturgical tradition ever been officially recognised in the post-conciliar magisterium? The answer is yes. Pope Paul VI, contrary to what one might imagine, refused to say 
harsh things about the old mass to justify his liturgical reform. The reform was in earnest preparation and the mass was already being celebrated in the vernacular when he said this about the ancient Latin office in 1966 in an Abbasolic letter addressed to religious superiors called Sacrificium Laudis, and I quote, Your founders and teachers, the holy ones, who are, as it were, so many lights within your religious families, have transmitted this to you. The traditions of the elders, your glory throughout long ages, must not be belittled. Indeed, your manner of celebrating the choral office has been one of the chief reasons why these families of yours have lasted so long and happily increased. It is thus most surprising that under the influence of a sudden agitation, some now think that it should be given up. In present conditions, what words or melodies could replace the forms of Catholic devotion which you have used until now? You should reflect and carefully consider what things would not be worse should this fine inheritance be discarded. It is to be feared that the choral office would turn into a mere bland recitation, suffering from poverty and begetting weariness, as you yourselves would perhaps be the first to experience. One can also wonder whether men would come in such numbers to your churches in quest of the sacred prayer, if its ancient and native tongue, joined to a chant full of grave beauty, resounded no more within your walls." Unquote. When the time came to announce the launch of the Novus Ordo itself on the 19th of November 1969, Pope Paul was inspired to even greater rhetorical extravagance. Referring to the reform, he said, and I quote, This is something that affects our hereditary religious patrimony, which seemed to enjoy the privilege of being untouchable and settled. It seemed to bring the power of our forefathers and our saints to our lips, and to give us the comfort of feeling faithful to our spiritual past, which we kept alive to pass it on to the generations ahead. The introduction of the vernacular will certainly be a great sacrifice for those who know the beauty, the power and the expressive sacrality of Latin. We are parting with the speech of the Christian centuries. We are becoming like profane intruders in the literary preserve of sacred utterance. We will lose a great part of that stupendous and incomparable artistic and spiritual thing, the Gregorian chant. We have reason indeed for regret, reason almost for bewilderment. What can we put in the place of that language of the angels? We are giving up something of priceless worth, but why? What is more precious than these loftiest of our church's values?" Unquote. The answer he gave, quite naturally, is that there was more to be gained by the reform than there was to be lost. What is important to note is that this was an exchange of the good for the better, not the replacement of something which was itself bad. Pope John Paul II did not have occasion to speak at such length but he did refer to the old liturgy in an early encyclical, Dominique Chaine, 1980. Noting the advantages conferred by the reform, he went on, and I quote, Nevertheless, there are also those people who, having been educated on the basis of the old liturgy in Latin, experience the lack of this one language, which in all the world was an expression of the unity of the church, and through its dignified character elicited a profound sense of the Eucharistic mystery." Unquote. 
Twenty years later, he returned to the Old Mass in a message to the Congregation for Divine Worship in 2001. And I quote, In the Roman Missal called of St Pius V, as in various Eastern liturgies, there are beautiful prayers with which the priest expresses the deepest sense of humility and reverence before the holy mysteries. These reveal the very substance of any liturgy. Unquote. It will be no surprise to hear that Pope Benedict XVI wrote in praise of the traditional Mass. In his letter to the bishops, accompanying his apostolic letter, Summorum Pontificum, he he declared that, and I quote, it has clearly been demonstrated that young persons too have discovered this liturgical form, felt its attraction and found in it a form of encounter with a mystery of the most holy Eucharist particularly suited to them, unquote. Again, he referred to, quote, the sacrality which attracts many people to the former usage, unquote. Finally, Pope Francis, in 2013, early in his pontificate, responded to a journalist who asked him about the Eastern rites as follows, and I quote, In the Orthodox churches they have retained that pristine liturgy which is so beautiful. We have lost some of the sense of adoration. The Orthodox preserved it. They praise God, they adore God, they sing, time does not matter. God is at the centre. And I would like to say, as you ask me this question, that this is a richness." Unquote. He goes on to repeat his regret that this is something the West has lost. Naturally, all these popes were officially committed to the superiority of the Reformed Mass and the overall fruitfulness of the Reform. Similarly, all were acutely aware of the problem of liturgical abuses upon which they blame any shortcomings of the Reform. None of them undertook any significant changes to the new missal after 1970, contrary to the expectations of its architect, Archbishop Annibale Bugnini, who wanted his reformed texts to be the beginning and not the end of a process of perpetual adaptation. Instead, the official position seems to be that in itself the reformed liturgy is more or less perfect and that it replaced something that was good. Bonini was frustrated in his efforts to get some kind of official abrogation of the 1962 Missal and ascribed his failure to an official attitude concerned not to, and I quote Bonini, to cast odium on the liturgical tradition, unquote. That is one way of expressing the situation illustrated by the previous quotations. For these four popes, the older liturgy is the liturgy they, they grew up with. It could not be vilified without vilifying their own formative spiritual experiences. Although in these quotations Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict both refer explicitly to Catholics who continue to be attracted to the older liturgy, these Catholics, though parties to continuing discussions and negotiations and subject to various official documents over the decades, are almost never referred to in magisterial texts. With the indults, the permissions of Pope Paul VI in 1971 for England and Wales, and of Pope John Paul II in 1984 and 1988 for the whole Church, the Church began the experiment of having the old and the new side by side in public celebrations. But until 2007, this was never the subject of any official comment good or bad. Indeed, after 1988, the only time Pope John Paul II referred to the fact that this was going on was an address to the monks of Le Beru, 
a traditionalist French Benedictine community who were granted an audience with him in 1990. I have managed to find this on the Vatican website, but it is only a few lines long and hardly mentions the liturgy. Part 2. Ratzinger and Liturgical Cohabitation Pope Benedict's frankness in his letter to bishops about the two forms existing side by side and perhaps even influencing each other was in this way revolutionary. It broke through a barrier of official embarrassment and the possibility that, at least for some people in some circumstances, the older mass might actually be more spiritually helpful than the newer one. Like a particular school of spirituality or devotion, it should in that case become a permanent part of the church's toolkit. The idea of cohabitation, one might assume, was implicit in the 1988 deal in which Pope John Paul II allowed the Mass more widely. If there are to be religious communities and priestly institutes attached to the ancient Mass, as was allowed in 1988, it would not make sense to say that the permission was only temporary or a matter of easing the transition to everyone attending the new Mass again. What would happen to these communities and institutes when the transition period elapsed? But there were those in Rome who clung to the transitional theory. In 1999, Cardinal Angelo Felici of the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei wrote to the then superior of the Paternity of St. Peter, Father Joseph Biesig, setting out his conception of the role of the commission. This was that of, and I quote, integrating the traditionalist faithful into the reality of the church, unquote. This turned out to mean not unity under the bishops in a single faith, but adopting as a first step the changes made to the Roman Missal in 1965. It was thus apparently a cause of concern to Cardinal Felici that the people had not sung the Pater Noster in masses celebrated during the Chartres pilgrimage. It was only an almighty row not only with the Fraternity of St Peter, but also with the Una Virtue Federation, that the 1962 edition of the Missal was re-established as a baseline for commissions relating to the traditional Mass. Even Pope Benedict has been understood to be referring to a transitional theory in his letter to bishops on the basis that his famous remarks about mutual enrichment indicate a pathway to an eventual merger of the two Missals. Thus, Cardinal Raymond Burke remarked in 2011, I quote, It seems to me that this is what he, Pope Benedict, has in mind, is that this mutual enrichment would seem to naturally produce a new form of the Roman rite, the reform of the reform, if we may, all of which I would welcome and look forward to its advent, unquote. Cardinal Robert Sara repeated the idea in 2017, and I quote, it is a priority that, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can examine through prayer and study how to return to a common reformed rite, always with this goal of a reconciliation inside the church. Unquote. Digression. Merged missiles. I would like to take a few moments out of the main argument of this podcast and note that this project of creating a merged missile is utterly doomed for a great many reasons. 
One is that, with a very few exceptions, mostly dating to the early 1990s, there is absolutely no enthusiasm among priests who celebrate the Old Mass for adopting practices introduced after 1962, and even less enthusiasm among the laity. If the merging missiles idea depends on priests adopting these practices voluntarily with the support of their congregations, it is a forlorn one. Another point is that the transitional liturgical practices of the years between 1962 and 1969 were not conceived of as a coherent and stable liturgical settlement. The documents promulgating them make this quite clear. The so-called Missal of 1965 is in fact just a list of changes mandated by the instruction inter oikumeniki, in, applied by priests to their old missiles with felt-tip pens, since it was mostly a matter of crossing things out. I mean this quite literally. I own a missile to which this was done. The instruction says about itself that it, and I quote, authorises or mandates that those measures that are practicable before revision of liturgical books go into effect immediately, unquote. These are not necessarily the measures most useful or most fundamental or closest to what Vatican II called for. On the last point, indeed, few, if any, of the 1965 changes, which include the abolition of the last gospel and the preparatory prayers at the beginning of Mass, can claim direct support from council documents. Other things which were mandated by the council, such as the multi-year lectionary and the revision of the prayers, had to wait until 1969 simply because they were so complicated to prepare. A third problem is illustrated by Cardinal Sara's specific idea to impose the reformed lectionary on the unreformed missal. His advisers had apparently not tumbled to the fact that the 1969 lectionary doesn't make provision for the season of Septuagesima, or that there is a web of cross-references between the propers and the lectionary throughout the old missal. Liturgy is not like Lego, which can be broken down into pieces, combined with bits from other sets and rebuilt. But the really big obstacle to this project is the idea, introduced by Pope Benedict's reference to mutual enrichment, that it would involve the Novus Ordo making some concessions to the 1962 Missal. The convergence would come from both directions. This idea had lots of reform of the reform enthusiasts sharpening their pencils with excitement, but it is utterly baffling to liturgical moderates and absolutely emetic to progressives. With that opposition, this idea is going nowhere. Pope Francis has made the rejection of the reform of the reform a keynote of his papacy, saying in 2016, and I quote, to speak of a reform of reform is a mistake, unquote. He seems to think of the reform of the reform as a matter of high-minded clergymen imposing things on the unwilling laity. There is just enough truth in this, in fact, to make this route out of the liturgical crisis impossible. The alternative method Pope Francis seems to have adopted for bringing Catholics attached to the ancient mass back to participation in the Novus Ordo is not tinkering with either missile, but simply restricting the celebration of the older one. End of digression, back to Ratzinger and liturgical pluralism. To return to the main point, 
what I have been describing can be summarised as follows. First, the post-conciliar popes can all be quoted as praising the traditional mass and even noting in specific ways the loss that accompanied the gain achieved by the liturgical reform, notably the sense of the sacred in the ancient mass and the contemplative engagement with the liturgy it elicited. The initial assumption under Pope Paul VI, as Pope Benedict noted in his letter to bishops, was that the older generation who wanted it would simply die off. When it became clear that new generations were taking it up, the idea took hold after 1988 that incremental changes to the older missile might bridge the gap. With the collapse of this possibility, then restricting celebrations might seem the way forward. I believe Pope Benedict was an exception to this tendency. The examples of mutual enrichment he gives in the letter to bishops do not suggest, at least to me, the idea of a merged missile, but on the contrary, he appears to look forward to a future in which both missiles will continue to exist side by side fruitfully. Enrichment of the 1962 missile with the possibility of celebrating new saints suggests that the distinctive calendar of the old mass is here to stay. Why change a calendar which is to be abolished? The enrichment of the 1970 missile consists simply of its being celebrated with more decorum. That, at any rate, is the only example he gives in the letter to bishops. Hopes or fears that Pope Benedict would introduce changes to the reform missile, such as allowing a silent canon or the old offertory prayers, were not fulfilled. What is interesting is the level of apparently instinctive resistance to the idea of the coexistence of the two missiles. On the interpretation of his views just set out, Pope Benedict's vision seems to be quite reasonable. After all, why not? For 50 years, traditional Catholics have sought a peaceful coexistence. They have quoted the documents of Vatican II praising liturgical diversity. They have pointed out that there are actually quite a few different missiles in use in the West, to say nothing at all of the Eastern ones. They have affirmed that in many cases they received their own formation in the Reformed rites, were baptised using them, and have no hesitation about their sacramental validity. This is true of me. I was baptised and confirmed with the Reformed rites, made my confessions and attended Mass according to them for the first 30 years of my life. These arguments, however, have found surprisingly little foothold, even when suggested by Pope Benedict himself. Immediately after Simon Pontificum, I recall an Italian bishop lamenting, and I quote, the reform is cancelled, unquote. A strange outburst, but a heartfelt one. The problem is that the older missile is seen by some to, as an affront to the reform. Saying that you'd like to attend the version of the mass which has not been reformed implies that you don't like the reform even that the reform failed. Part three, are traditionalists bad people? This is the key to understanding the hostility now being revived against Catholics attached to the old missal. It certainly needs some explanation. The accusations made against them in Pope Francis' letter to bishops seem strangely without context or proportion. He writes, and I quote, 
ever more plain in the words and attitudes of many is the close connection between the choice of celebrations according to the liturgical books prior to Vatican Council II and the rejection of the church and her institutions in the name of what is called the true church. One is dealing here with comportment that contradicts communion and nurtures the divisive tendency. I belong to Paul. I belong instead to Apollo. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Christ, against which the Apostle Paul so vigorously reacted." Unquote. The injustice of this characterization of the faithful who have benefited from the provisions made for the older mass by Pope Benedict is shocking. One gets the impression that some advisor to Pope Francis has got his browser stuck on a sedipacantist website or on one of the more fevered threads of an online discussion forum. It should be obvious that people who reject the church and her institutions will also reject the celebrations of mass with the permission of the local bishop. Indeed, I have encountered people who regard members of the Latin Mass Society as no better than liberal apostates, and masses celebrated with the permission of the local bishop are so tainted by this that regardless of the holiness of the celebrant or the rite used, they would refuse to attend. At least, I used to encounter such individuals, particularly before 2007. Like the poor, the crazies will always be with us. But Pope Benedict's magnanimity made a profound impression even on people hard to reach with reasoned arguments and also brought into celebration to the older missal many new attendees who did not feel the need to adopt extreme theories in order to justify assisting at this mass. They simply went along because it was a legitimate option and it fed their souls. It is clear to all fair-minded observers that the problem of extremism among those attending the Old Mass was always primarily found outside the structures of the Church at celebrations of the SSPX, independent priests and sedificantists, and in any case has vastly decreased in scale since 2007. As the Catholic Herald's US editor David Mills wrote, after saying he didn't himself attend the Old Mass, I quote, the apologists for suppression claim that the people who want the old mass are divisive. If that is true, and it is sometimes, the obvious answer is to remove the reason for their alienation. Extend to them the care and the concessions you extend to other marginal groups. Some will remain cranky and disgruntled, but the church has room for the cranky and disgruntled." Unquote. Let us hope she does have room, because there are many such at the Novus Ordo. One might point out, indeed, that certain kinds of Novus Ordo celebration have a close connection with the rejection of the Church and her institutions in the name of some imagined true Church. I am thinking here of progressive liturgies larded with liturgical abuses, whose regular attendees reliably believe that the hierarchical Church is an empty shell obscuring the true Church, where there would be women priests, gay marriage, contraception, and all the rest of it. Are Pope Francis' advisers and apologists really so out of touch that they think that theological dissent and a schismatic mindset are more closely associated with, for example, the Sunday afternoon extraordinary form option in some conservative parish somewhere than they are with the pro-LGBT New Ways ministry 
the women who claimed to have been ordained in boats on the Danube, the Dutch churches where lay women invent their own Eucharistic prayers with which to lead services, the Australian parishes where invalid baptismal formulas were used for years on end, the American priest who filmed himself performing pornography on the altar of his church with two prostitutes or syncretist masses in India where our Lord Jesus Christ must compete for attention with Shiva. Those advisers and apologists are not ignorant of these problems. The US bishops have forbidden the New Way's ministry to call itself Catholic, the Lady would-be Ordinands, and the Australian priests with the invalid baptisms were excommunicated. The Dutch group were eventually forced to move out of their parish church. The American pornographer was suspended. Most of these things happened under Pope Francis. Nor is Pope Francis' circle unconcerned with a really large-scale schismatic potential of liberal development such as the German synodal path. The concern about the traditional mass, which seems objectively so completely disproportionate, is not to do with how many traditional Catholics have made immature remarks on Facebook. As far as that kind of thing goes, traddies are completely outclassed by liberal Catholics and we should stop beating ourselves up about it. It is fundamentally about the use of the earlier missile in itself. This fundamental worry serves to magnify the problems of annoying traditional Catholics, which are real, but in themselves on an utterly insignificant scale. The clue is given in the text of the letter, where it says that the reformed missal is the unico, not the unique, but the only expression of the lex arandi, the law of prayer, of the Roman missal. This is a puzzling statement, since the document itself allows the celebration of the older missal, and what can, he, what can it be but an expression of the church's Lex Arandi. And what about all the other missiles, like the reformed Carthusian missile or the unreformed Dominican one, which are still in use in the Latin church? I think the answer would have to be, never mind all that. In some vague but important sense, the missile of Pope Paul VI is the unum necessarium, the one thing necessary. Pope Francis goes on, and I quote, I am nonetheless saddened that the instrumental use of the Missale Romanum of 1962 is often characterised by a rejection not only of the liturgical reform but of the Vatican Council to itself, claiming with unfounded and unsustainable assertions that it betrays the tradition and the true Church. To doubt the Council is to doubt the intentions of those very fathers who exercised their collegial power in a solemn manner, cum petro et sub petro, in an ecumenical council, and in the final analysis, to doubt the Holy Spirit himself who guides the church." Unquote. To understand this passage, we need to take a little step back. Anyone with experience of the liberal Catholic mindset will know that Vatican II is not regarded as a set of documents so much as a direction of travel. For such Catholics, it is a matter of indifference if they contradict the words of the Council if they think that they are travelling in the direction set by the Council. Thus, the Council told religious to simplify their habits, but not to discard them. According to the liberal way of thinking, the religious who did discard them were following the direction of the Council, which moved away from traditional habits and towards not having habits at all, even if it did not go all the way. 
the bit forbidden religious to get rid of their habits has no force on this view despite being in the council text because it sets an arbitrary limit to the direction set by the Holy Spirit. Something similar seems to be going on with the letter to bishops. Oceans of ink have been spilt on the meaning of the council texts. Libraries of books have been written on the problems of its implementation and yet the desire to attend the unreformed mass is here the first of a series of falling dominoes to reject the reform, to reject the council, to reject the intentions of the council fathers, to reject the Holy Spirit. Logically, one could stop this sequence at any point. One could like the old mass without rejecting the reform in itself. One could criticise the reform that actually took place, but not the council. One could criticise the council documents without impugning the intentions of the fathers. One could question the fathers' intentions without rejecting the Holy Spirit. But in the latter, the sequence is rolled into one appalling rejection of the re direction of travel that council set in motion. At the prompting, so it is claimed, of the Holy Spirit. To question what has been done in the name of the council implies a sin against the Holy Ghost. Part four, some qualifications. What I have suggested needs a bit of qualification. One thing I should emphasize is that it is very difficult to discern the different influences on Pope Francis' documents in relation to ecclesial politics. I am not going to attempt to do so, but it is clear that not everyone in the Curia or among the Italian bishops or among those close to Pope Francis has exactly the same views. There was nothing inevitable about the emergence of these documents. It happened because of a no doubt complex interplay of factors. Pope Benedict had established a position which seemed reasonable and was increasingly widely accepted by the bishops of the world, writing in his letter to bishops, I quote, many people who clearly accepted the binding character of the Second Vatican Council and were faithful to the Pope and the bishops, nonetheless also desired to recover the form of the sacred liturgy that was dear to them." Unquote. This was for 14 years the hermeneutical key for many people considering the relationship between the traditional movement and Vatican II. Again, back in 1988, Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was, had derided the idea that the Second Vatican Council was a super dogma which rendered everything else irrelevant and on another occasion express his outrage about how some in the church made even the desire for the old mass seem somehow indecent. For reasons which we may not know till all secrets are revealed at doomsday, an anti-Ratzingerian group have, perhaps only momentarily, gained the upper hand in Pope Francis' inner circle. It was not naive of us to be shocked by traditionis custodes, Indeed, it is hard to know if this new direction represents the real Francis or the former policy. For Pope Francis himself had given little indication of such a move. He had previously been very laissez-faire about the old liturgy. There is quite a long list of achievements in its favour which could be ascribed quite directly to him. The continued access of St. Moran Pontifical pilgrimage to St. Peter's Basilica and other churches in Rome, the multiplying concessions to pre-1962 practices of a congregation for the doctrine of the faith, the granting of faculties to hear confessions by the SSPX, 
The giving only last year of a basilica a stone's throw from the Ponte Sant'Angelo in Rome for the use of the traditionist Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest and many others. The mere fact that Pope Francis gave us all eight years of his pontificate before reversing course, eight years of ordinations and traditional institutes, of the multiplication of traditional mass centres and apostolates, of the softening of bishops towards the old mass, of the turnover of the generations in all kinds of offices to men not embittered by personal experience of the liturgical reform, of the increasingly evident imbalance of conservative seminarians over liberal ones, of the development of the lay movement in support of some more pontificum, this may, in the end, prove his most lasting achievement. Samoan Pontificum worked its work not for a mere five years or so, until shortly after Pope Benedict's resignation, which might have happened, but for almost exactly 14 years. After 14 years, it is going to be pretty difficult to get the genie back into the bottle. Part 5. An Objection to Liturgical Cohabitation an objection may be raised at this point. I have described two ways of looking at the continuing use of the ancient missal. First, that by itself it calls into question the legitimacy, in Pope Francis' expression, of the liturgical reform, and therefore Vatican II. The second, that of Pope Benedict, that it is simply part of the Church's legitimate diversity. The objection is simply that Pope Francis is correct and Pope Benedict was wrong, because there is a fundamental dissonance between the two forms of mass. This view has been expressed in the mainstream by liberal Catholics, for example, in Commonweal. Sometimes, though less often, something like it is heard from Catholics attached to the old mass. In the latter case, it takes its start from a radical critique of liturgical reform, I can't give an assessment of that critique here, but it should be pointed out that before his election as Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger himself made some very serious criticisms of the reform, especially in his great book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. These are not part of the Church's teaching, of course, but he published this book during his very long stint as prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, and it would be ridiculous to suggest that making such criticisms implies a rejection of the Council or puts one outside the Church. There is room for serious discussion about the pros and cons of the reform as it was carried out and the theological and liturgical principles underlying it. Alternative liturgical traditions can coexist in the church, even if they contrast quite strongly. But there is, of course, a limit to how much they can differ in their fundamental principles before we have a real problem. However, the problem doesn't arise from some conflict between the missiles. The problem, if there is one, would be a matter of a liturgy conflicting, not with another liturgy, but with the teaching of the church. Every now and then the church has to judge whether some missal or specific text or practice can be used liturgically. Examples include former Lutherans wanting to receive from the chalice in the 16th century, Chinese Catholics wanting to honour their ancestors with traditional Confucian ceremonies in the 17th century, and former Anglicans wanting to use Cranmer's Prayer of Humble Access today. There are limits to the Church's flexibility, but they are surprisingly wide, and in each of these examples, the Church's judgment was positive, if not unqualifiedly so. 
Evidently, the church's judgment of the ancient Roman Missal, in use practically unchanged from the Missale Romano Seraphicum of the 13th century up to 1964, has been a positive one. In the case of the Novus Ordo, it was promulgated with the authority of Pope Paul VI, which gives it both legal validity and also the benefit of the doubt in terms of how it should be understood in relation to the church's perennial teaching. If there are problems with it, such as those identified by Cardinal Ratzinger, they must be faced, but they wouldn't go away, even if the unreformed missile were never celebrated again. Indeed, I have a shelf full of books criticising the Novus Ordo by liturgical conservatives who believe that the widespread restoration of the traditional mass was a non-starter. They include the work of Father Jonathan Robinson, Professor Laszlo Dobsey, Monsignor Andrew Burnham, Father Aidan Nichols, and Father Michael Lang. The stream of such work on the reform of the reform has dried up since 2007. Why? Summorum Pontificum released a pressure valve on the Novus Ordo. Those who are worried about it have turned their attention for the most part to the traditional mass, and conflict about the Novus Ordo has subsided as a result. If the 1962 option is blocked once more, the liturgical pressure within the Novus Ordo will start rising again. Some people have suggested this would actually be a good thing. Stay with the Reform and Mass, they say, and make it better. But this ignores the extreme bitterness of the internal Novus Ordo conflicts and the very limited progress the Reform and Reform movement had been making. In any case, as already noted, this is not what Pope Francis wants to see. Part 6. Conservatives and Traditionalists Having attempted an explanation of how Traditionis Custodes could have happened, I want now to consider its consequences. To do this, I need to consider first the evolution of the attitude of what we call conservative Catholics, those who regard themselves as orthodox but do not go in for the old mass. Then I'll briefly note the situation of liberal Catholics and turn to the bishops. Rewinding the tape to 1969, the implementation of Vatican II reform of the liturgy was resisted fiercely by some, but it must be conceded that those who made a public stand against it were a tiny group of people. The reason for this was only partly the exaggerated conception of obedience which characterised the conservative Catholics of that era. This was certainly a factor, but thoughtful Catholics had the option of playing up to this or playing it down, and they had two important reasons, as they thought, for playing up to it. One was liturgical. Pope Paul made the point introducing the Novus Ordo in one of his general audiences in November 1969, and I quote, This reform puts an end to uncertainties, to discussions, to arbitrary abuses, unquote. He is not alone in hoping that this would be true. Liturgical abuses and experimentation had reached epidemic proportions during the time of successive changes in the 1960s. It was natural for people concerned about this to seize on the new missile as a rock of stability, something guaranteed by the highest authority of the church, which could be legally enforced. The other was doctrinal. In the previous year, 1968, Pope Paul had promulgated Humanae Vitae, reiterating the Church's teaching of contraception. It was preceded and followed by a massive and well-organised campaign of dissent. 
At this moment of crisis, it is not surprising that many conservative Catholics considered that this was not the moment to be quibbling about the extent of papal authority, insofar as the hyper-papalism of the pre-conciliar era still had traction with the faithful, it could come in very handy. For many years, these two considerations continued to push conservatives, Catholics, but towards unquestioning obedience to the Holy Father. The 1970 Missale Romanum continued to be a reference point against liturgical abuses which were, in anyone's book, vastly worse than the Novus Ordo in itself, and a steady stream of papal documents sought to combat doctrinal dissent. For conservative Catholics, explaining away Pope John Paul's equivocations on the death penalty and working up some enthusiasm for the luminous mysteries of the Rosary seemed far preferable to giving away the obedience card which could be used against the liberals. In this context, it wasn't just that traditional Catholics weren't obeying the Pope's wishes on liturgical matters. More fundamentally, conservatives could not forgive them for questioning their own very wide conception of obedience as a principle. Without papal authority and obedience, how is anyone to oppose the liberal agenda when the liberals seem to have the arguments, the professors of theology, and the younger generation on their side. Gradually, of course, things changed. Today, liberal Catholics no longer have anything of intellectual interest or academic credibility to say. They can no longer claim to represent the rising generation and even freely admit this. Then, with Pope Benedict, the direction of papal liturgical policy suddenly changed. Those determined to follow every whim of the reigning Pope had to find nice things to say about the traditional mass. For many, this acted like the removal in confession of the obex of sin which stops the flow of grace. The ancient mass suddenly gained a big new following, both lay and clerical. These new trads had to confront the fact that until five minutes earlier, papal policy had been not only misguided, but unjust and even theologically problematic, according to the reigning Pope himself. As Pope Benedict put it, the liturgical discontinuity represented by the complete obliteration of the older missal created a hole in the heart of the Church between the present and the past, which, and he, I quote, called her very being into question, unquote. This insight of Pope Benedict's is absolutely critical, and having argued it before his election, he refers to it again in the letter to bishops, which accompanies Simon Pontificum, and cites it as his key motivation for that document in his post-abdication book interview, Last Testament. Although just as eager to obey Pope Benedict as they had been to obey John Paul II, this admission of Pope Benedict's fatally weakened the classical conservative position. It has forced the more thoughtful conservatives to find new ways of defending the church's doctrine, not merely because the Pope says so and Jesus Christ gave the Pope authority, but because they are established by the traditions of the church hang together and make sense. In short, a traditionalist approach. This way of going about apologetics puts the ancient liturgy on the inside of the set of things which should be defended, not out in the cold. It becomes a limb of the baby, not part of the bathwater. For the liturgy is also the product of tradition, and not only coheres with doctrine, but as Pope Benedict also reminded us, it is a theological source 
a proper basis for arguments to theological conclusions. It has been into this fatally weakened hyperpapalism that Pope Francis collided. With the family synods and Amoris Laetitia, he overturned the expectation that the Pope would always exercise his authority in a conservative direction on the hot-button issues of doctrine and discipline, contraception, same-sex attraction and divorce. Long-term proponents of the conservative position like George of Eigel, the late Germain Griset and Father Thomas Wainandi, and conservative institutions like First Things and EWTN at first struggled to accommodate Pope Francis' eccentricities into their outlook and then redefine themselves as the royal opposition. It might look as though their papalism was only ever of instrumental importance to them, but to be fair, one could say that the combination of Benedict and Francis has shown that the position was simply untenable. At this point, when either turns into an unabashed papal positivist without any fixed theological views at all, like the hardcore Francis fanatics on Twitter, or one maintains some modicum of intellectual self-respect. In this context, it is not surprising that Traditionis Custodes has been greeted by a chorus of criticism from across the spectrum of opinion. Again and again I have read people say, I don't regularly attend the traditional mass, but, or I have only recently started attending, and people, that is, who have not drunk very deeply, or at all, of any traditional Catholic critique of Vatican II or of the liturgical reform, have been thrown into opposition to Pope Francis. Conservative Catholicism, as a way of interpreting the world, can no longer insist on obedience to every word which falls from the papal lips. As the ancient Mass itself is no longer completely outside their experience as a lived liturgical option, they can see, in many cases, the effect it has had on friends and family members, and even on themselves. It is interesting to note that the same, at the same time, liberal Catholics have also been put in a difficult position by Traditionis Custodate. Their hopes for Pope Francis as the man to deliver their agenda have already largely been dashed. That might seem odd given the consternation of conservatives over Amoris Laetitia, but liberals wanted a clear green light for remarriage after divorce, female ordination, contraception and all their other favourite things. They have not had it, and it no longer looks to anyone as though they are going to get it from Pope Francis. The most they have had is an emphasis on pastoral concern in preference to rules, but this, vague as it is, seems in complete contradiction to the tone and content of Traditionis Custodes, where, one might ask, is the accompaniment, where is the Hagon Leo, the mess-making. Instead, we are offered regimentation and uniformity to be enforced with sweeping papal commands. Thus, we find even liberal Catholics like Catherine Pepinster, the former editor of the Tablet, expressing grave misgivings about Pope Francis' apparently arbitrary use of papal power. Part 7. Traditionis Custodes and the Bishops the episodic letter also causes a problem for the bishops of the world. Some, of course, will be pleased to be given the moral authority to clamp down on celebrations of the Old Mass, and presumably it is these whose views are reflected in the document. These, however, are very few. 
They include the handful of bishops whose predecessor had been significantly more friendly to the traditional mass than they are themselves. For nearly every other bishop in the world, however, the situation of the traditional mass in their diocese, whether completely absent, plentifully present, or somewhere in between, is more or less what they already want it to be. So more pontificum made a big difference, but the difference it made was not a matter of bishops being forced to allow celebrations. Occasionally they may have been shamed into allowing them, but no bishop was ever removed from office for refusing to comply. It gave a psychological boost to the cause for the traditional mass, which meant that as the years passed there were more and more places in which the bishops' diminishing aversion to it ceased to outweigh increasing demands for it from priests and people. It helped that there were more and more priests available to celebrate it, whether from the traditional priestly institutes or the younger generation of diocesan priests, and in the context of the accelerating decline of the church in the developed world, an ever-increasing number of redundant church buildings. This meant that by negotiation, experimentation and taking the opportunities of manpower and real estate which presented themselves in the course of time, establishing or allowing celebrations of the old mass solved problems for the bishops. What to do with an historical church? How to get a group of traditional Catholics off his back? How to satisfy the desires of certain priests? Once that had happened, bishops would often begin to appreciate the fruits of these apostolates the marriages and baptisms, the feeling of being treated like a real old-fashioned bishop when visiting the parish, the outsized financial contributions, and above all, the vocations, many of them coming into the diocesan seminary. Sometimes the path of least resistance is also the right thing to do. There are now scores of bishops who have experienced this around the world. Traditionis Custodes has given them not the power to solve a problem they had, but a new problem that they did not want. What the path of least resistance now means for these bishops, the ones not strongly motivated by ideology in either direction, today depends on a complex calculation. Some may feel that they should make a show of implementing the apostolic letter to avoid blotting their copybooks with a nuncio. How important that is may depend on the nuncio, the attitude of neighbouring bishops, and the bishop's personal ambitions. Others will repeat a form of words about complying, but find canonical and pastoral arguments for doing precisely nothing. These arguments indeed are perfectly respectable ones, and the Latin Mass Society has contributed to their development. The overall effect will certainly be a fall in the number of celebrations and traditional apostolates, but it is already becoming manifest that passive resistance to the apostolic letter among bishops is going to be extremely widespread. Having accepted in some measure at least Pope Benedict's policy over the last 14 years, it is difficult for them to see why they should suddenly go into reverse gear. Part 8. After Traditionis Custodes where does that leave us, lay Catholics, attached to the ancient Mass? The Latin Mass Society and Univoce groups around the world have been making the case for bishops to allow celebrations of the Old Mass for 50 years. In most places, until 2007, it was like getting blood out of a stone. In a lot of places, it carried on being like that. 
I could cite many examples from Africa, Latin America, Asia and Southern Europe where Simorum Pontificum had yet to arrive when Traditionis Custodes was published. Traditionis Custodes has not changed the task of the Latin Mass movement. Pope Francis allows the Mass to continue where the good of souls requires it, and we will continue to explain to bishops that for the good of souls, this or that traditional Mass centre be maintained, or this or that traditional pilgrimage or retreat be allowed, in accordance with the law of the Church and in union of faith and charity with the bishop and the Holy Father. The more sympathetic bishops will listen to our arguments, and the less sympathetic ones will not. We will continue to do the work of preparing music, training altar service, mending vestments, teaching Latin, encouraging priests to learn the old mass, organising events and maintaining a network of mutual encouragement and support. We will not be returning to the situation of 1969, however, because the balance of forces in the church has changed radically since then. Pope Francis' power to make things happen, either by moral leadership or by legislation, is low by historical standards. He can no longer count on slavish obedience from conservative hyper-papalists or from liberals hoping for concessions. He has consistently and deliberately played down the office of the papacy, its prerogatives and prestige, and the place of rules in the church. He has shown little interest in the Roman Curia, except to criticise its staff. To cap it all, his recent major operation has reminded the ambitious of his mortality. Bishops are not going to ignore traditionis custodes, but it would hardly be the first time for them that implementing a missive from the Vatican has had to be balanced against other considerations. In this interesting situation, the movement for the Latin Mass may not flourish, but it will certainly survive. In the medium term, it doesn't seem too fanciful to imagine an incoming Pope surveying the scene and deciding that more problems can be solved by lifting restrictions on the celebration of the ancient Mass than by keeping them in place. The reality of cohabitation between the two forms of Mass, which in many places will still be in place from before Traditionis Custodes, will then be officially approved once more. In that case, the movement for the traditional Mass will bounce back. Things will not be the same again, however, because after such a series of policy reversals, papal prestige will be seriously weakened. In the future, the fate of the new and old masses will not be determined by the fancies of the reigning pope, but on the basis of their pastoral and theological merits, worked out in practice locally. This may be a bit chaotic, but the ancient mass will be able to reach more and more people. To return to a point I made at the beginning of this presentation, we will see its power to draw people in, not to a private experience which they happen to prefer, but to the centre of the Church's spirituality and teaching. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating the podcast on the platform you are using. You'll find some more information and links relating to the talk in the show notes, which you can see on a page dedicated to the IOTA Unum podcast series on our website. The Latin Mass Society promotes the celebration of the ancient Latin liturgy of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, organising masses and training events, and defending and explaining the liturgical tradition in the context of the Catholic liturgy and thought. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation. 
you'll find a big red donate button in the top right hand corner. Thank you.